All right, let's get back into it. Part two of this extended campaign <laughs> retrospective and uh, Q&A with the authors of Cults of Cthulhu. We've got Chris and Mike here again with us, and I'm just going to get straight back into some of the questions, if that's all right. Uh, let's talk characters. There were some very vivid NPCs in the trilogy. Last time we talked about, I can't remember if we named him Cecil or if he was that in the book, but one of the two toughs protecting the mad composer became a bit of a favourite with us. Um, I know that one of our listeners also chimed in that when he ran it, his group was absolutely enamoured with Betty Guthrie, the sweet old lady from Angel's Thirst. We loved Lombardo the mob boss as well. I think that was Lydia's fave. So Chris and Mike, any standout NPCs for you, faves, in terms of writing, playtesting? Um, if I dive in with one, uh, I, I think in in Loki's Gift, um, I really like the character of Ruth Jones, who is the uh, the muse of... Um, it's Chillingworth, isn't it? I'm trying to remember the name now, mm -hmm. the, the, the main guy. Yeah, yeah well done. It's kind of like yeah. the muse of Chillingworth, um, or she's the muse of Chillingworth, but she is also a cultist. Um, and uh, I like the idea that she had a potential for, um, she's presented in this scenario as a, you know, she's a cultist working with Chillingworth, but she has her own, own mind and there's a potential for her to go her own way and maybe either escape the cult, aid the investigators or, or, or do those things, but actually take over from Chillingworth. Maybe, maybe her ambitions rise. I, I like the idea because I think it's very true to life uh, that a cult is never static. There's always going to be somebody who's coming up through the ranks who wants the power, who wants to take the leadership. Um, and uh, and I, so I like the idea of the kind of infighting because it gives um, it gives an inroad to the investigators if they choose to kind of exploit that potentially. So I, I like I liked uh, how you know Ruth was presented and and uh, she was seemed to me like a quite a a real person in terms of uh, the things she could do. She wasn't um, just a kind of programmed NPC that would do X and X and then disappear. Uh, she could have a role throughout if, uh, you know, if the uh, the PCs kind of really engaged with her. That, that's one that stood out for me in, in that particular scenario. Do you, uh, what do you think, Chris? Yeah, well, I've really, I liked the idea one character on their own doesn't quite do it. It's I like the idea of Sir Wendell and how he was the one that sort of started this whole thing, but he is really just slipping away. You know, he's walking around in his pajamas are naked, I think, a lot of the time <laughs> in the background. He just doesn't care about these things anymore. And that uh, Holcomb, Holcomb? Holcomb. Yes. I don't say the name. <laughs> the guy with the top hat. Am I saying it right? Hol Holcomb? Yeah, Hol Holcomb. Holcomb, uh, he, he and and he's the guy that's in the better position. He's the real cult leader because he's actually almost an administ administrator, but he also has the power because Sir Wendell's sort of fading away. And like Mike was saying, there's this shift in the dynamics of the cult, and it's going to be keep becoming something different. And, and I like that idea because you know Sir Wendell was in the Boer War, and he had like just this really interesting history of how he got to where he is, and then where he's going. He's, he's sort of on the down and. Um, Theodore was on the up, and I thought that was a neat dynamic. So I like those characters, even though they're not really in the scenario very much <laughs> at all, actually. I don't think Sir Wendell's in the scenario. No. He's just back, a background character. Yeah. yeah. But that's a, a guy, when I remember writing his bio and trying to figure out what was going on 
in the world at the, you know, how, if he's this old, this needs to be the things. And then just coming up with that character, I thought it was really interesting and I liked him, but like you said, <laughs> he's not really in the, uh, he's not really in the scenario, but Lombardo was fun. I remember every time I NPC'd him, he was a good time. <laughs> I think I overdid him a little bit and my players got a bit of the wrong idea of what he's about, but you know what? It was fun anyway. We enjoyed it. Though. We did enjoy Lombardo. Yeah. I don't know if you could overdo Lombardo. I think that that's not possible. Nah. Well, <laughs> you say that. I love Lombardo. What was the impression you got? <laughs> kind of leaned into almost a film noirish element oh, yeah. as well for me Absolutely. you know with i i love a good mob boss and uh, do you know what? i would love to see a godfather cthulhu crossover <laughs> or something i think that would be amazing yeah, no, i think gangsters are always fun to play you know when you're yeah. the keeper they're, they're, they're just great Absolutely. <laughs> often you can just you know draw upon the godfather and all these other kind of gangster movies and uh, kind of really go to town in terms of how you present them and their mannerisms and yeah. you can't really go wrong really they're, they're, they're often uh Really, really totally. great characters to play. And they're just like about to make us an offer we can't refuse. And then in comes the fish man. <laughs> <laughs> didn't see that coming at all. You did not oh, try to save moment. him. I think you tried to shoot him while he was being dragged away by fish We man. did do that. Yeah. And by we, I mean I. <laughs> we did. Wow. We did. There were layers of conflict in that. <laughs> it was a strategic choice. And I remember uh, Carl, Carl Day, even though, again, he's not really much in the scenario, I liked that character and coming up with who he was and his backstory and just what the guy was about. Uh, uh, he just felt like a real person to me when I was writing all the stuff up about that guy. And his many ex-wives. <laughs> yeah. His many ex-wives. That's calm. What, did he have many? Did he have one? Carl I thought he had one. Maybe he had more did than one. Did he have multiple? I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. I know he had one because I think he had a kid yeah. that he didn't see enough. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that stuff about him. Yeah, he was an, an interesting guy, I thought. I, boy, it's been so long since his, I wrote that stuff. His apartment was almost a character, mm. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. There was, uh, we haven't mentioned him yet, but an NPC that got us wondering from a writing perspective was Dan Shippey, <laughs> Levi Diaz's unhelpful boss at Speedy Taxis in Angel's <laughs> Thirst. Because right, yeah. it turned out he didn't have any useful clues to give. You're sort of given his no. name, like, oh, you should try talking to his boss. So you go talk to his boss, and then he's just like mean. Just a <laughs> and jerk. Unhelpful. <laughs> Um, so he's a bit of a, a little bit of a dead end, but I think our playthrough is definitely enriched by his inclusion. And I guess the question is what inspired him? Would you consider him like a deliberate red herring? And if so, what are your, what are your thoughts on including those when crafting a scenario? Uh, I, I'm usually, boy, that's a, that's a good question because most of the time I don't like red herrings in RPGs. However, I think with, it was Dan Shippey, right? Is that his name? Dan mm -hmm. Shippey? Yeah, yeah. It, it threw me off because that's somebody's, <laughs> I used, that's a friend from a long time ago. Oh, 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 no. The shade. So we need, to, we, know, we need to know about no, no, what you he, think he about friends. He doesn't play role-playing games. Okay. He doesn't play role-playing games. And he'll never, I haven't talked to him in years. So there's no but way. He, he is a jerk and he does run a taxi firm. <laughs> he doesn't run a taxi firm, no. But he was a certain type of person that I think when I was coming up with it, I based him off of off of him slightly oh nice uh, but but dan was actually he was much nicer than the character mm -hmm. in, in in the story obviously but 
<laughs> Obviously. But yeah, I, I no, I don't, I don't like red herrings, but I think it's one of the first leads, right? It's one of the first places they go mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. in the beginning. And I just didn't want it to be too easy. I wanted some confrontation. I wanted something that was a little bit uh, of a push in the very beginning of it. I'm trying to remember. I, I, I know, I know, because I remember, I, I, I remember this. So I, I would, okay, I would take issue that he's a red herring. It's not. He is, he, he, is, he, is, he is like the, he's, he's like a living embodiment of a library. Uh, and uh, in, in, in that you have to get past, or, well, a better analogy, he's the doorman of the speakeasy. And you kind of ah. have to get by him in some way to get to the the juicy clue behind that, which is actually Myrtle Cunningham, who works in a taxi firm. And she, ah. if you look, you know, you know this scenario, basically has loads of clues to give the investigators. Yeah. So um, Shippy is really the kind of the doorman, and 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 you can play him um, as mean as you like. And, and you can, or you can, you know, if you think actually, oh, it's just, a, it's just a roadblock. You can not have him in the, in the scenario. It doesn't make any difference whether he's in there or not. But if you have him in, it provides, as I see, a, a little, a little touch of reality. You know, a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of strangers walk into your taxi firm and start asking questions. How yeah. are you going to react? You know, like, well, who are you? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Yes. It. What it was. He. He didn't like the guy Levi, who was who was disappeared. He didn't like him because Levi was a really good guy, and and I think that was what I was trying to communicate. Is like, oh, this guy, because I think he he accuses him of like uh, gambling or sleep, sleeping around or doing other. And Levi never did any of that. He was like a really good dad and a really good husband, and this guy was the guy that had a gambling problem and. And I, I think there was some psychology role that you could that you could see. Oh, this guy's full of it. And and hopefully, if you made that psychology role, you would get some insight into Levi. It's like, oh, this guy's a scumbag, and Levi's really good. He's a really good guy. So that would hopefully put you in the position of being on his side. I I think. And maybe it was too complicated. Uh, of a thing that I was going for there, to be frank, now that I'm thinking about it, because it's been uh, seven years since I wrote it. It worked yeah. for us. That did work for us. Yeah, I think we got stumped later on Good. when we had to go via the, the architect of the church to find out more. That was the bit that got us. Right. Whose name is uh, Gil or Jill, but they, when they had the name Gil, Gil, they were like, that's definitely a fish yeah. man. Yeah, we lost it. <laughs> that's it. That's the link. Yeah. We got him. Oh, no. What's his name? Gil McFish? So they did everything they could to avoid interacting with him and just broke in, trashed the place, and then left. Oh, wow. But they did not talk to him at any point. <laughs> Because his name is Gil and he's probably a fisherman. <laughs> Was that on purpose? <laughs> Did you sabotage no. us on purpose, Chris? Be honest. I, I don't think so. But now that you said it, maybe I did on some subconscious level. Mm. It's like um, whenever, whenever uh, an NPC has the surname of Marsh in a scenario, <laughs> it's, a, it's a red flag. And so often I change because... It's just literally the name that the author's given them. Um, 
without thinking of the Innsmouth connection. Uh, and so I just change it because it, yeah. it, it would just kind of railroad things. It's the same as like having mm. a, a story yeah. set in Arkham and, and the character's got the surname of Mason. It's like, <laughs> yeah, clearly they're a witch. You know, yeah. so it's, uh, it's, it's one of yeah. those things. But Gil, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think of that either. I mean, that's Gil is, Gil is no, just a name. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we were fully through the looking glass by that point. Yeah. yeah. Deep, deep in. And also man with a double N. But, oh, uh, Carl, clearly. Yeah. Carl, man. man. Yep. Also middle name fish. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the uh, yeah, I think the architect was was something I remember when writing. I was to me, I was like, who builds these crazy places, <laughs> yeah. like these weird temples? Like, because you need like people to do it. It needs to be, and somebody has to actually design it so it's structurally sound and that it's going to work and it's going to function and do all the things that it's supposed to do. So you need an architect. So what's that guy like? And is he up for it? Is he into it? Is he you know? I th- wasn't Gil wasn't really. He wasn't in the cult. He was pressured or blackmailed. Wasn't mm-hmm. I don't, it's been so long? She I don't had an remember. Affair with Elsie. Elsie. Oh, yeah, with Elsie. Yeah. Oh, right. The honeypot. He got. Yeah, that whole. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so he got seduced and then blackmailed, which was uh, not uncommon. That was a thing that happened. I found out. Mm, drama. Yeah, it's terrible. But good, good story. We've had the phrase, uh, clearly a witch, which reminds me about (laughs) Remember Fletcher in A God's Dream, who shows up in the attic and is another one of these um, presumably seeds that you've put in to, uh, to allow the scenario to be expanded into a wider adventure. Because yeah. she just, I mean, we freed her unhesitatingly from her glass tube and then she just said, ha I'm a witch, and disappeared. And that was that. Driving most of us insane. Yeah. Her exact words. So, yes. what inspired <laughs> her? Yeah. Is there a story there? That is not literally how I played this character. I just want to make that clear. I didn't say, ha-ha, I'm a witch, what? and then made her disappear. I think... I think uh, I think the motivation for it was that I was trying to focus more on technology, and it was short of it was, it was trying. To, I was trying to show that this new cult that uses technology, and in Lovecraft stuff, there's uh, the line between magic and technology is pretty blurry. So I, I thought it was interesting to have somebody that's like a Kaziah Mason like character, you know, that uses magic in a witchy kind of way and go oh these people have put her in her place as in like they've got power over her and i thought that was something that that the players would maybe understand it's like oh and then if it was a bigger uh campaign if they were gonna she could be a potential ally to the players maybe at some point or a whole other threat from just another direction uh, it depends on what they did for her or with her and she's obviously an insane cultist as well in her own way so uh, it would be up for the keeper to decide what they wanted to do with her if anything and if it was something they wanted to continue so th- those were my thoughts of what that character was about yeah i, I like characters that they kind of aren't they aren't really integral to the main plot but they are key NPCs in the, on their own right. 
um, because again, it gives you as a keeper the flexibility to kind of just sideline them or to bring them in to play a role. And it, it's often useful to have a kind of a, a free agent NPC who can act to aid or hinder the PCs depending on how rapidly, rapidly or not they're making their way to the climax. Um, so, uh, remember Fletcher is kind of a good, a good potential to do that. Uh, equally, as you said, uh, it's, she's a great seed for a further adventure, you know, uh, to turn up uh, later on and they kind of see her in the street and there's a kind of a look between, you know, the, their eyes meet and she darts her, and she darts away <laughs> and suddenly the PCs that are completely back in, that was her from the jar! What's, what's she doing here? We must go and find out because clearly it can't be anything good. And so it's, it's a great kind of um, lead into, you know, further further situations and so forth so yeah the whole house breaking was so fun and the attic you know being slightly different from the incredibly sort of everything was cookie cutter downstairs and the attic still had the original features and then a, a woman in a bell jar mm -hmm. it was yeah it was a great great fun sort of scene it gave us one of my favorite bouts of madness which was brayden getting really angry <laughs> yeah <laughs> That was a delight, honestly. Honestly, that was, was such a mundane type of bout of madness, but Brayden just executed it so perfectly, it just killed me. I've never been so pleased to be verbally abused. It was <laughs> honestly fantastic. <laughs> One way to put it. <laughs> One more question about the characters. <laughs> we were wondering while we were playing, this is Angel's Thirst, just to take us back to the 20s. Um, <laughs> why do all the NPC headshot handouts have crazy eyes? <laughs> Even, even the ones that are not deep ones or hybrids, like Betty Guthrie, we noticed a definite sort of globular fishy look to the eyes. Now, is that just the artist sort of ran with that look or did you specifically request it? Any thoughts? Um, the the artist in question has a particular specialism in, in drawing people with slightly bulbous eyes. And it was a, it was a little bit of an in-joke, an in only I got that they that um they all could potentially be kind of deep one hybrids and it was just I just amused yeah. amused me to mess with people's heads but uh it that, really uh, did it really know, did <laughs> because um yeah just taking things on face value um yeah it was it was really just the, the that particular artist has a particular style and it and it just kind of like hey they're just going to think everyone's a deep one and there's no deep ones at all you know so that was kind of just a bit of an in joke really um so yeah <laughs> uh, i uh, side note i love the art because mike put the team together obviously that did all the artwork and commissioned everything and it, it's fabulous it there's it's so exciting to write stuff and then see the drawings and the paintings that are based off the things that you wrote and they're just like they nailed it this is exactly what i envisioned this is amazing and there's so much of that in the in the book it's uh, just very proud of the whole product it's just it's gorgeous so good job <laughs> thank <Mike>. you <laughs> we fell right down that googly eyes rabbit hole we, we really did <laughs> and there really is some stellar artwork yep we were convinced. Yeah. And we empathize with that because Howl is our scenario artist. <laughs> and I also feel like that when he gets the Aww. vision, like that, uh, yeah, good vibes only. Crystal was very vague in my head, oh, but you well, got that. Thank you. Um, obviously, as an illustrator, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. That's always the feeling that I'm shooting for. So I really appreciate that. That is the final question I had about the characters, unless anybody else had something burning a hole in their chest. 
Well, there's the question about Angel's Thirst, the name. We understood, you know, Loki's Gift is the name of the play, and A God's Dream, there is a god who is dreaming, so we get it. <laughs> Angel's Thirst, a little bit less self-explanatory. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the angels are the the different uh, the different deities that she was worshiping. You know, there's the the different aspects. So you had the deep ones. You had the uh, what are the names of it? You had the, the things that lived underground. You had the things that were in the water. I think it was associated with the elements. Mm -hmm. And she referred to them as angels. They were they were angels, and they all want something. And that's that's sim that's it. Simply uh -huh. enough, it's the it's it's. They they want something from people and from humanity and you know that's it. They the the cult is going to quench their thirst for them in return for uh, oh. you know whatever it is they want. That's it. It's it's not that complex. I'm sorry. Maybe it was a bit uh, obfuscated. <laughs> I didn't mean it to be. No, no. It's not to put you on no. the spot. We were just curious. Awesome. Well, I think I'm at the point of asking you whether there were any other. Any, this is probably quite a difficult question to ask so long after writing it, but were there any ideas that you sort of wanted to cram into the book and just couldn't find a way to, or it was too late? Any, anything on the cutting room floor that didn't make it in? No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> no, no. I remember too, um, one of the things that we had talked about, I was, Mike was keen on having the Deathless Masters in is part of it and i was and when i first draft i said oh let's just leave them alone and keep them mysterious and mike was like no nah, come on we can't do that people are craving they want some deathless masters we got to put we got to give them some stuff and and i was like well, okay and i think ultimately mike was right that it needed to be in there it's it's a role-playing game supplement and that's what these that's what you're you want when you're buying this book about cthulhu cults there better be some deathless master stuff in there which I was the right choice that Mike made ultimately. Uh, I agree. Good job, Mike, again <laughs> uh, with that. So uh, my version of it was a bit smaller and Mike added uh, a few more bits here and there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I felt it was essential. Uh, if the book is about the Cthulhu cult and the masters of the Cthulhu cult are the deathless masters, it would kind of be, as I saw it, a bit of an unforgivable sin not to at least mention them. Um, and so, yeah, Chris did some uh, initial kind of work on the deathless masters and, you know, uh, started out uh, a brand new one. And um, and then I, I kind of read that and went, yeah, that's great, but not enough. And... Uh, and then wrote a, a ton, a ton of more kind of uh, in you know background about you know why and how and how you can kind of interpret them and how they you know might act in a game and all the rest of it. Um, so that that was something that I was very keen to you know to to build into, um, and it led to kind of deciding how to design one because although we'd kind of got a we'd kind of sat it up one and we'd got. Um, Carl Stanford from, you know, from way back in the day from the old uh, Shadows of the Old South Arthur campaign. Um, so we had two kind of template ones, but I, I thought, well, if we're getting people to design their own cults, they're probably going to want to design their own cult leader in that way, a deathless master who kind of works in the shadows and it could be the kind of the big villain in the background throughout a campaign. So that kind of led into the kind of like, looking at different powers they could have and how you could modify them and how you could kind of basically tailor 
a death that's mastered to, to what you want. And, and hence, you know, there was like, uh, here's a kind of baseline stats and here's how you can, you know, think about Pulp Cthulhu with it and here's spells they might have and, and all that kind of thing. Trying to do a lot of the kind of legwork for keepers to make, you know, their lives easier, really. And, uh, and that was kind of mirrored really with it, with the, because I don't think you'd, um, you you touched on this in the original manuscript, Chris, but uh, I felt it was kind of something we again we needed to kind of add in to kind of help to tailor uh, different Cthulhu cults or different cults in general. And so I kind of came up with the idea of the kind of Cthulhu's blessings, which were a, really a set of um, a whole list of different kind of abilities and powers and boons and so forth that that you know cultists could be blessed with by the deity that they worship to kind of really kind of beef them up a bit and give them a bit of variation so they're not just evil moustache twirling villains everyone they you know that there's some that you know could have more limbs and two heads and uh and, and so forth you know, to... but it's it's sort of a middle ground between a sorcerer and a yeah. cultist you know because a, a cultist just generally is a guy with a gun that works for a cult and you know, does the grunt work and then, and then the sorcerer or the cult leaders has the magic and the power and they're in touch with it. So having something in between that, somebody that's got some supernatural abilities, but isn't a full-blown sorcerer, I thought it's a brilliant idea. So good one, Mike, again. <laughs> it was all it was all based on your, your ideas, Chris, obviously. Oh, go on. You know. <laughs> You guys. you guys get a room. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I feel it's really important if if you're is to try and give a lot of options to people to make to make their lives easier to to you know which which you know Chris has done a whole chapter on designing a cult uh, which gives a lot of options and a lot of variation to really kind of get people's kind of creative juices going really and it just felt this was just a, the kind of a, another component of that to to uh, to just give it a little bit more breadth as well. Um, and it was great, you know, kind of going back to uh, somebody like Carl Stanford, who was, you know, first, you know, created by Sandy uh, back in, you know, 1980, and um, and kind of looking at them and updating them to 7th edition and kind of really thinking them through as a outside of the campaign and you know them as a them as a, a key character, and of course he also appears in. Uh, spoiler: Masks of Anathotep. <gasps> uh, but again, but again, he plays a he's, he's a very much a background role to that, and it's nice to have it because I remember as a player having played Shadows of Yggdrasil back in the early eighties and knowing that you know we'd met Carl Stanford and he was a really bad dude and we'd come off really very very badly from meeting him, um, and then with the same you know the same group of players playing different characters completely metagaming, we were we played masks and and suddenly we had the literally didn't meet him we just saw the name Carl Stanford on the letter and literally as a group we went oh no we're, we're completely doomed now and and, uh, and and that really rang a bell with me that kind of the idea of that kind of all powerful villain that you hardly ever meet, but you get to know kind of at a tangent and, and you just live in fear of the day you actually, your characters are going to meet them because you know that they are near invincible. And so I really like that idea. And I think that kind of blends into the whole concept of the, uh, the Deathless Masters too. We did get a question. You've mentioned these uh, boons and blessings of Cthulhu. Uh, the question was, what do you think would be the best and worst things about being a cultist of Cthulhu as they're portrayed in the book? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I don't know if there is a best. Well, the hours are good, presumably. Mm. There must be some benefits. I mean, there was free beer and hot dogs with Angel's Thirst. Oh, uh, gosh. <laughs> oh, yeah, the hot dogs. The uh, Casual Fridays, let's not forget. Just, the, but that's, uh, it's interesting because, I, yeah, nothing is really good about it. It's one of those, well, for me in my life now, uh, you know, middle-aged guy with two kids uh no it would be horrible there's there's no upside to that nothing that would improve my life <laughs> in any way uh so yeah bad but uh i guess the worst thing would be uh just violence in general just having to hurt people because some i mean Boy, that the, just that idea that oh, Cthulhu's real, and I'm gonna try and curry favor with this totally alien intelligence that I can never comprehend. So what what am I gonna do that's gonna make it happy? And can it be happy? Is that even something? How does it work? I don't understand all these things. There's too many questions. So to be a cultist, you would have to be really deluded, I think, ultimately. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, um, maybe maybe I take a slightly different track in terms of the benefits. Uh, the because, devil on uh, your shoulder. If I if if I'm uh, if I'm you know if I if I've got a menu in front of me and I'm looking at page one hundred sixty three of Cults of Cthulhu here, which is the uh, which is the which is the bullet points of Cthulhu's blessings. I mean, the ability to sprout tentacles whenever I like. <laughs> I mean, that that could be a bonus at times. Yeah. If I want to. I want to. I want to. I want I want to kind of you know when I'm cooking and I want to kind of reach over there and get the salt and reach over there and get the you know the flour and so forth you know that could be a real boon equally suddenly sprouting them in the middle when you're at the end of a queue might mean that everyone runs away and I can get to the queue the front of the queue quicker so I think you know, there are some benefits potentially uh, but yeah um, sure I mean but, if you yeah. look at it that way okay gather the dead make a zombie <laughs> Tidy up the house. You're selling it more and more. Yeah. 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 I'm on board. Sign me up. A deeply British answer as well. I feel like uh, voluntary tentacles could help me with baking and uh, queue facilitation. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't need to make two trips to bring the groceries in from the car, would you? Truly a well, Exactly. Exactly. They these these things that you know bane my life yes absolutely awesome all right well um that about wraps it up for my questions about cults of cthulhu but i've got a few left um one of them is do you ever get the time obviously we know stars are right is your favorite so you don't have to tell us that but do you ever get the time out of your busy schedule to listen to any other uh actual plays of the adventures you write uh no, I've got a I've got a confession to make as a podcaster. I, I doing I do two podcasts, so about twelve shows a month. I don't listen <laughs> to podcasts anymore because my writing that I do is uh, I either write I'm writing, which requires not listening to something. I don't even I can't even listen to music while I'm writing, or. Uh, editing sound and obviously you can't listen to other things while you're editing sound and if I'm not doing those two things then I'm not working and in the old days how I got into podcasting was I used to be an animator uh, in when I lived in Los Angeles and that's a different part of your brain so I would listen to podcasts all the time and go through them like every you know every day and but once I started doing it and once it became my full-time job I just can't listen to them anymore. I don't even listen to the 
uh, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but I don't even listen to the fully edited version of my shows because in our pipeline, uh, I do the first pass of the edit and then it goes over to Chad and or Rachel, uh, depending on what show I'm doing. And uh, she and he will put in the final bits and then it goes out. So I don't often go back and listen to the fi the final show because I've already been sitting with it for so long. So not only do I not listen to other people's shows, I don't even <laughs> listen to my own shows. That's relatable, honestly. Yeah, and right. we're only making the one <laughs> weekly show. So, yeah. <laughs> what does that uh, look like for you, Mike? Same answer? Um, I, I, li I, I do listen to podcasts. I listen to quite a lot of different podcasts. Uh, I also... Um, uh, I, I get sent or I get notifications that such and such group are, are doing a live play of, you know, a Cthulhu scenario uh, and it's on YouTube. And so uh, I tend, what I do with live plays, I dip in and out. I, I have to say, I don't, I don't tend to listen to them, you know, all the way through, but I do kind of hop, skip and jump through them. Basically, going past the points where players are talking about nothing and, and going to a point that I know is scenario specific because I'm interested to see how they react to that scene. Uh, and so I kind of hop, skip and jump to kind of guessing that, oh, I think they're about to open the door and the beat the shog off. I'll listen to that bit. And so I kind of listen to the highlights, I guess, if you see what I mean. Uh, and it's the same which I'm watching uh, a group on video. I'll kind of just kind of hop through the video to uh to what i you know think are the other key scenes for me to kind of that i want to listen to um so that's how i kind of do with live plays um but again like chris i can't listen to anything when i'm writing and editing um uh, just you know it's just silence really it's i sit in a dark room in silence and work you know all hours of the day and night you know it's, it's the only way to uh to really get it done otherwise your mind wanders and suddenly they oh well what have i where am i now what have i done and, and you kind of forget where you are um so i tend to listen to podcasts like you know normal people when i'm you know doing the washing up or driving and that kind of thing so that's uh that's really how i get my uh podcast fix really speaking of uh, all the great writing and work you're doing i i feel bad asking this question because i strongly suspect that mike gets asked it first thing in the morning and last thing at night and every five minutes in between uh but we did get asked do we have any idea uh what the next call of cthulhu product to be released by kirzim will be and how long until it's released <laughs> uh yeah i do get asked that question quite a lot um the um the thing is, I just make the books. I don't release the books. It's, uh, you know, other people in the company, you know, get involved and they go away and print them. And then there's somebody handling logistics and tracking where they go from the printer on what boats to what warehouses. And then there's another person who's kind of working on, you know, uh, telling retailers and people like Amazon and websites about when they can order them to then have them on sale. And these are all out of my hands. So it's very hard for me to kind of you know, tell people exactly when things are coming out because my nine out of ten times I don't actually know. But uh, I, what I do have is a, a rough sense of, you know, the order of when things uh, will be coming out. And so... Um, and it, but even that changes because a book may go to print before another book, but the other book might actually 
come out of printing sooner and actually get on the boats or, or the planes to the various warehouses before the, the book that you would think would have been there first does. So uh, everything I say is you have to take with a pinch of salt. But um, but in terms of uh, things that will be forthcoming in the next, you know, uh, let's say, you know, over the next, uh, you know, 12 months, uh, that's a large enough window for me to get away with. Um, the the probably the next Call of Cthulhu book will be a a solo book, which um, is uh, called Alone Against the Static, and um, all I can tell you it's a modern day Alone Against book and um, is uh, very cool. Um, but the other the other big projects I've been working on and uh, kind of have more or less finished now, so they're kind of going into the whole kind of printing pipeline and so forth, uh, is um, Arkham Unveiled, Legend Haunted Arkham, which is the uh, the big uh, source book on Arkham uh, and uh, does what it says on the tin. And um, that's been a, a major piece of work for me. It's taken a long time to uh, to to reach fruition and we are kind of just about there now. In fact, I spent the last five days proofing the book and checking uh, something like 25 pages of corrections uh, in the layout. And I'm happy to say that uh, most of those were done. Uh, there's only a handful left to do before we can kind of sign the book off. So that's very, very nearly, uh, nearly ready. Um, and uh, the other, the other big project has been Gaslight that, uh, uh, myself and Keris McDonald have uh, kind of been working. Keris has done all the hard work and you know piecing it together and weaving it into uh, into the two volumes that we're going to release for players and keepers. Um, and I've had the uh, I had the easy job. I kind of started the project and wrote some stuff and did some research and gathered some previously you know published material that we've done under Gaslight and kind of threw it all in a big bag. And then I kind of gave it to Keris and said, okay, here's, here's all the ingredients. Could you now go and make two books, please? And so Keris did all the hard work. And then I've been finessing the text and uh, editing and so forth to finish those up. And again, those those two are done, uh, but we're just in the process of um, gathering art and maps and things like that. And uh, so they'll be, you know, they'll be coming out next year sometime. Um, and they're the kind of the big stuff, but we've got, you know, I'm, I'm, we've got some other books as well that will be out, you know, sometime next year. And uh, all I can tell you is probably the names of them, just to give you a, a bit of a spicy hint. There's um, there's uh, there's a book called uh, No Time to Scream, uh, which uh, which in my, my head is a, sort of like a James Bond title, really. But uh, yeah, No Time to Scream. Uh, and uh, there's another one called uh, The Order of the Stone, which probably will be appearing sooner than some of the others, uh, which is a uh, a three-part, uh, what I would call mini campaign. I always think of a campaign and I think I think, I think think they're like masks, you know, which are very big campaigns. So I kind of differentiate them by saying this is a mini campaign because it's only three rather than eight scenarios and so forth. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's uh, uh, coming out as well. And um, what else? Oh, we've got some other Gaslight stuff coming, but I can't really talk about. And uh, there's also uh, another kind of uh, scenario collection, but it's specifically Pulp Cthulhu uh, with um, uh, what probably be two quite uh, involved and interesting kind of pulp scenarios, uh, which um, 
we have on the cards as well. So lots of things, and that's just the tip of the iceberg as usual, but uh, but they're, uh, they're things to kind of uh, whet your appetites for over the next uh, 12 or so months. Definitely tantalising. I am particularly interested in this. Uh, I mean, we certainly made a meal of... Uh, I mean, it made a meal very positively of the three scenarios in Cults of Cthulhu, and we're hungry for future campaigns. So this Order of the Stone, very interesting. Um, are there any thoughts someone asked on doing cults of other deities similar to the new RuneQuest books? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> we do already have uh, another cults of book. Uh, we actually have a, um, a cults of Hastor. Uh, book uh, in development. It's been written, the first draft has been written, but uh, we've not yet been able to shoehorn it into the actual editorial schedule, but it, it will be it will be kind of shoehorned in there at some point. Um, but we have a kind of a follow-up uh, in a sense of looking at uh, Hastor or, or he that should not be named or the King in Yellow or whatever you want to call whichever variant of Hastor uh, you're, you're into. Um, uh, we have that kind of uh, in, you know, a, a, a first draft of that. And uh, I'm keen to kind of you know, get into that one at some point. But uh, at the minute, I'm uh, having finished Arkham, I'm kind of, my head is full of deep ones. So I'm uh, <laughs> work, working on the uh, the very early stages of the Innsmouth book now. So uh, that's that kind of is, that's got to kind of happen first before I can really uh, turn my attention to uh, uh, Hastor and so forth. So, Well, thank you for teasing all this amazing stuff. That's really very exciting. Uh, if I can give you just a moment to, to think back to Cult of Cthulhu and what you might be proud of in having made it, was there anything um, that you think you did really well in that book that you'd like to see sort of continued in future Call of Cthulhu scenarios? Um, I, Chris, do you, do you want to go first? Oh, no, I, I just know one of the bits that I'm especially proud of in that book, I, I can't speak to f future game products, obviously, but, but what I really, I really enjoyed the making your own cult chapter. I think that that's kind of the, the best bit of it, in my opinion, that it, it just, it was, it was fun to do, but it was also, I think it's really useful and helpful to people if they want to build their own antagonist for a Call of Cthulhu story, that it really gives you what what you need exactly, or at least I feel that it does. And I'm just really proud of that particular section. I think the whole book is is great. Uh, and I'm really, you know, working with Mike and Paul and everybody in the art team to be able to be part of something like this is just, I'm very proud of it. And I think it's a great book in, in its entirety. But that one particular chapter is the one that I think really is a gem of a role-playing game supplement. I, I mean, I agree. I think that chapter is fantastic. I think um, you really hit the nail on the head with that. Uh, uh, because, I mean, for me, game books, uh, there's three three things a game book can be. It can be adventures, which, you know, are the most kind of immediate and impactful in terms of, you know, being able to use them with a group of people. Then there's kind of source material, which, you know, somebody goes away and reads and maybe maybe absorbs and maybe somewhere down the road some of that kind of regurgitates out at the gaming table in some way um and then there's the the, the bit in the middle which is the kind of how-to or guiding um and that's the bit that um you know often is overlooked or, or not done enough of and uh, so i felt you know i felt that we did get 
that kind of level right in this book because it has all three of those components. I mean, some books only have one of them, but this book has all three of those kind of what I would call three kind of pillars of a, a good role playing book. Uh, and, um, so that, that's, you know, that's good to see. And I'm proud of that. And I'm very pleased, uh, you know, um, that, you know, Chris agreed to do it because I think, uh, Chris brought a certain, um, level of, um, not only expertise to it, but also, was able to draw upon his own, you know, background in terms of, you know, just in terms of his podcasting experience of having, you know, gone through and, and looked at Lovecraft stories in depth over a long period of time. Uh, there's a lot of knowledge there to draw upon that can kind of, you know, comes out through the pages of that particular book. So I'm very pleased that, you know, that, uh, that you know, we had the opportunity to work with Chris on that one. I'm pleased that you took that opportunity and worked with me on it because I, obviously the book wouldn't exist without you. You're the guy that came up with the idea and everything. So it was just this wonderful together project that all the parts were needed for it to work. And uh, so thanks, Mike. Thanks for coming up with it. And I'm, it's one of those things in my life because I played Call of Cthulhu since I was, uh, you know, 13 years old and which is a long time ago. And uh, to be able to have a book, you know, a, a Cthulhu book, a official chaos and Cthulhu book that I was a part of in such a big way, uh, meant a, a, a lot to me. You know, it was just a huge thing. One of my life goals was attained by, uh, writing on this book. So thanks, Mike. <laughs> well, thank you. But, um, no, I mean, what, what, what the real joy is for me is to, uh, it's you guys who, you know, who, you know, the guys asking us the questions, um, <laughs> Because you know, that's why we do it, you know, is, is why we put these books out, is why we, you know, slave over typos and 20 pages of corrections and all that <laughs> kind of stuff, is because the end result is, I go back to my cult, fun, is, is to have, a, is, is to um, hopefully um, enable people that we may never meet to have a fantastic experience and, and share some sort of um, fun experience around a gaming table. And uh, sometimes, you know, we get to hear about them. Sometimes we get to, you know, listen and see them when they, it's a live play. Or sometimes it's just, you know, that conversation at, uh, at a, a booth at a convention when somebody comes up and says, says, hey, we just played, you know, this scenario from Cults of Cthulhu and, and I go, well, how, how did it end? And they tell, oh, terribly, we all died. And, <laughs> and, 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 and they're smiling and laughing and, you know, and, and so that's, that's the real kind of payoff, really, in a sense of, uh, it's, uh, wonderful to kind of hopefully in small, some small part, uh, help, uh, people to kind of, you know, just get together and have a good time, which is, uh, you know, it's not a, you know, there's many other jobs that don't, you know, wouldn't allow me to do that. So uh, it's great to kind of uh, be able to kind of, you know, look back and kind of feel that, you know, you, you've helped and uh, done something positive rather than negative, I guess, if you look at it that way. My goodness. Well, I'm loving this positivity. And I think I speak for everybody when I say thank you. Thank you both. Yeah, and everyone else you. who worked on the project as well for, for putting together this amazing book, for enabling the fun times we've had with it. And, and both of you, thanks so much for, for joining us and for being so generous with your time this evening. I, I only have uh, one final question for you, really. And that is, would you rather fight one Cthulhu-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized Cthulhus? <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna go for the just go with your gut. The, the Cthulhu-sized duck. No. I, 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 
I, I think a hundred hundred duck sized Cthulhu sounds far more fun. So uh, I'm going to go with I that like one. Interesting. <laughs> Splitting the answer. <laughs> Honestly, thank you so much. Um, yeah, that that brings us to the end of the questions. But it's really it's been a joy talking to you both. Thank you. I think we're going to let you uh, leave if you'd like to get on with the rest of your evenings. But first, is there anything that you you'd like to plug or places people can find more of your stuff? I mean, they know that anyway. But please take the opportunity. Uh, yeah, just check out my my main podcast, Strange Studies of Strange Stories, formerly the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. You can find that on all your uh, podcasting feeds and on Patreon, as well as the podcast I do with my wife called Rachel Watches Star Trek, where I've gotten my wife to watch Star Trek, who's never, ever even been remotely interested in watching any Star Trek. And now we are getting started in Deep Space Nine. So it's been going on for a while. Oh, that's an achievement. It is. She still doesn't really like Star Trek. <laughs> oh, no. That's dedication as well, then. Wow. Yeah. She doesn't hate it, but she's not. If we were doing a podcast about it, she would have stopped watching it a long time ago. <laughs> That's a trick, then. It is. It is working. That's a sign of a strong marriage. <laughs> you are getting to the good stuff. Now you're getting into DS9, though, of course. Oh, I know. I'm so jazzed. Yeah, I'm so jazzed. Uh, Mike, anything in particular you wanted to shout out? Sure. Well, uh, you know, regarding Call of Cthulhu, uh, please, you know, just check out chaosium.com and join our uh, mailing list if you want to, you know, hear about new releases and so forth coming out. Uh, and, uh, you know, you'll get all the latest information of what we're bringing out and so on. Uh, and aside from, you know, Call of Cthulhu, then there's my podcast that I do with Paul Fricker, uh, which is called Mason and Fricker's Eldritch Stories. Uh, and you can find that at eldritchstories.com uh, and on all your usual you know, podcast feeds, uh, which is where me and Paul have written a series of short horror stories. And so every other episode is one of us reading the other story. Uh, and, uh, and, there's, and then in between those story episodes are basically me and Paul Fricker chatting about stuff which could be films, games, books, and whatever has taken our fancy that week. So uh, you get a bit of, uh, get a bit of uh, nonsense natter and some uh, what might be chilling short stories too. But, uh, but so check us out if you uh, are into any of that. Outstanding. Thank you both again very much indeed. We will now uh, reluctantly let you go. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Ah, uh, well, that was really fun. Okay, uh, let's take another short break now. And in fact, I think we'll end part two there. But do come back, listeners, for the third and final part of this very extended Beyond the Madness session, where I will be directing the questions to my fellow cast members and Keeper. And we will get to chatting about our Cults of Cthulhu playthrough. We'll see you next time. <laughs>